But when we're embedded in a system in which we have a lot of frequent contact or relation, there becomes a dynamic, right? I play this role, you play that role. Um, So ultimately, when we create change, that is A, why it's so hard to create change because when one person shifts, the whole system is impacted. And as I've talked about, you know, endlessly in how to do the work, change is hard. We're not wired, right, to prefer change. We actually like to stay in those well-worn worn ruts. We have a sense of identity, right? I'm the helper of the family. I'm the overachiever. I'm the underachiever, whatever role it is. And the whole family is settled into that. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today's guest, in returning for the third time, is my friend, Dr. Nicole LaPera, aka the holistic psychologist. Today on the show, we discuss how to break the toxic cycle of self-sabotage in relationships, how Nicole transformed unhealthy patterns into healthy ones, how to regulate your nervous system while dating, why affirmations don't always work, how to know if you're actually ready to start dating again, how to reprogram your subconscious mind, how to use conflict in relationships as an opportunity for growth, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Nicole LaPera back to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Nicole, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. I'm honored to be here. It's great to see you again, and I would love to just jump right in. Um, I loved your new book, How to Be the Love You Seek, and I think a great place for us to start that will act as a good foundation for our conversation is how can people stop breaking this toxic cycle of self-sabotage in relationships that cause them to stay in the same type of relationship over and over again leads to low self-worth, low self-esteem, loneliness. Like how can people start? The first step you'll always hear me acknowledge um, as being foundational in terms of creating change in ourselves, our relationship with ourselves or our relationship with others is becoming conscious. And for the respect of this conversation, becoming conscious that we are playing a role in co-creating the dynamics in our relationships. And hey, I'm the first person who will share. I spent decades of my life not understanding consciously the role that I was playing. I think like many of us, endlessly seeking right this type of partner, this idea of just if I only find the right person, I'll be able to feel differently, um, experience my relationship differently, feel more connected, and ultimately feel more loved and known by those around me. And it really took me understanding uh, the subconscious, the power of our childhood and these early experiences, me really understanding my past experience in a new conscious way that allowed me then to insert myself as part of the cycle. It wasn't just everyone else around me who was creating this lack of connection. I was actually doing so based on how I was showing up in my relationships which then, of course, allows us to make those new choices to begin to create change, break these cycles, deepen our dynamics or our connections with those around us. Talk to me about how your divorce really transformed your relationship with yourself and other relationships and got you to stop self-sabotaging in in your romantic relationships. I mean, even before my divorce, I was in a cycle of relationships again where I was feeling – 
very kind of distance, disconnected from people, but very much kind of always trying to be chosen. Um, and when I met my past partner, who I'm now divorced from, um, she was someone who came into the relationship very independent. There was an unconscious attraction there for me and her independence because it allowed me to stay emotionally distant. Meanwhile, though, I didn't have any of this language for it. And at the same time, she very early on would share her past relational experience with me, um, telling me, you know, that she wasn't one that was going to consider marriage. And then before long, we were actually talking about taking that commitment into marriage. So sharing that just a bit of that background, I felt excited. I felt chosen. I felt what I thought it was that I was looking for. So I very quickly, um, we actually had to fly out of state because it wasn't legal to get married, same sex, where we were living in New York at the time. So we, we booked a flight. We went. We got married. Uh, several years into the to our marriage, we made the decision to leave New York City where we were living. I was at the state um, in my schooling where I was able to begin to start to accrue hours to build a practice to get my license. So long story short, we moved from our very embedded social life in New York City to Philadelphia. And again, I'm just sharing all of these kind of background examples to really set up. When we landed in Philly, I began to practice. Again, we were in our committed marriage at that time. And there was really a highlight or a spotlight being put on that lack of emotional connection. And at that same time, I one of the places that I was training at was a psychoanalytic institute, which simply means when it's kind of think of Freud and the couch and, you know, that kind of that deep um, analysis into the self and insight driven. And one of the requirements was for me to be in my own therapy and for also me to be in a group version of therapy where I would sit around the room with my colleagues and we would really analyze each other, um, for lack of a better word. So saying that to say, um, I really had a spotlight on, again, this lack of what I was feeling to be an emotional connection. And I started to lodge these complaints within our relationship and really came to the awareness that I didn't kind of have what it was that, that I was looking for or I was wanting or I was needing. And me, for several months, um, feeling that way and not being able to, the people pleaser in me, the person who was very worried about, right, breaking the heart of the person that I cared about, was was doing everything but kind of speaking directly what it was that I was feeling. I was trying to push her away. I was being very avoidant. I would, you know, cause issues about a million other things um, than what was really going on for me. So again, saying that to say, me making the choice. Um, to be able to stand in my truth, which was that this was a relationship that I wanted to separate from. And then finally being able to have that conversation as difficult as it was and um, as emotional as it was, because that was not something that she was wanting at the time, was for me a, a big shift um, in, in terms of my own healing journey, whereas I was now creating a space um, in my relationships with her, and then that trickled into with my family and then to with my future partners, where I was able to begin to honor myself and what my wants and needs are, even in the moments where they drastically differed from the wants and needs of those around me. And you were in the midst of like success at that time, correct? Like doing what you're doing now? I was in, um, when I was with her, I was finishing up the very many hours, um, it took me a little over two years to, to get my license. Um, at the same time, though, I was, again, in Philadelphia, so I was beginning to build or work toward what would end up being a very successful private practice. So I was in the beginning stages, to simplify it, absolutely, of 
but I'd complete it, right, my PhD, more or less. It was just a matter of getting a number of hours, and I would get my diploma. So in a lot of ways, yes, I had kind of entered, I, I checked the last box on my endless list of achievements, as I like to say it. And even my move to Philadelphia was something that I thought I had wanted. My family, I'm from Philadelphia, born and raised. They are still living outside of Philadelphia. I very much thought I was going to be a city girl for the rest of my life. So in a lot of ways, I was creating from where I was living and proximity to my family to what I was doing. Um, in a lot of ways, I was, yes, very successful in that external sense. I saw you take your, was it your dad to the Eagles? Was it the Super Bowl or a playoff game? Um, yes, what was that? the what Super was, Bowl. What was that like? Um, so again, my my relationship with my family, um, with within my divorce, that really kind of set some dominoes um, in, in kind of movement. And after a lot of, you know, rearranging of dynamics in my family, me setting a lot of new boundaries, me even taking time away from my family for the better part of a year and a half, and then reconnecting, repairing, exploring all of these dynamics. Um, the relationship that I now have with my family and with my dad included is, in my opinion, much more authentic. Um, I have much more space uh, to be myself, um, to share my perspectives, which on many occasions are different than his perspectives, um, and to you know kind of relate in a in a deeper level. So. When the Eagles, um, we've always been a Philadelphia family and, and cheered the Eagles on. My dad actually has season tickets, so that's something that he and I have done together. I've gone to many games with him. When I heard not only that the Super Bowl was out here in Arizona, where I now live, and that the Eagles were in it, uh, it was kind of a no-brainer that my dad is now upwards of 86 years old, and um, I just lost my mom a little over two years ago. So it was a no-brainer that I wanted to be able to gift my dad and myself in a lot of ways that experience for us to to go and do that together. So being, again, in a much more grounded place with each other, doing something that historically we had loved to do together, and with my mom included. My mom was a huge Eagles fan. It was, it was a very emotional experience and a very fulfilling one. So I'm, I'm so grateful that I had had that opportunity. That's amazing that things can come, that things come back full circle and that you're, you're able to do things like that for your family where, you know, before it's like you said, like you were, you were working on healing the relationship with your family and coming to terms with a lot of the stuff that happened when you were younger and reprogramming your, your mind and changing your patterns and, and to, to stop this the self-sabotaging cycle in relationships so that you can learn to have these, you know, healthier relationships throughout the course of your life. And it's just really cool that all of that kind of, kind of comes back full circle and you're able to take your dad to this event that I, I, I gather was probably one of the most meaningful moments of his life. Yeah. And even, I mean, even it coming full circle, I, if I'm being honest, I, I had, I didn't know uh, when I made that most difficult decision to to separate from them, however many years ago that it was, I, I wasn't actually sure what would happen next. Um, you know, I had a lot of concern about how it would be for them, for me to, you know, seemingly so abruptly from their perspective, at least um, separate from them. So when I did that, I really walked into the unknown, though at that point I was grounded enough in my own healing that I knew instinctively that I needed to create that degree of separation so that I could continue to explore myself and, you know, figure out how to be an individual and even who I was so that in time when I always kind of anticipated and had wanted a relationship with my family. So in time when I did make that choice to reconnect and if they were to be open, which I was very grateful that they were open to it. I was also very grateful to hear that my leaving 
kind of inspired them in a lot of ways to begin to explore their own dynamics. And they had entered family therapy, and that's where we reconnected. So again, sharing that to say, I, I didn't have the future awareness of what would happen at that time. And actually, I had a lot of fear about what could happen, what could happen in terms of health with my aging parents when I was you know, disconnected from them. I had a lot of fear that they wouldn't be welcoming me and a reconnection. Um, and I had a lot of fear, again, that they would be exactly right where we had left and it would be really difficult to create the shift. Though what had changed in the interim of that about 18-month period was I continued to grow in my own confidence and my own security and my own kind of belief that regardless of what I was met with, the door slammed in my face, if you will, and or them being exactly as I left them, I had a lot of confidence then that I could figure out how to navigate, continuing to keep the boundaries that I need, continuing to, as you're beautifully saying, not self-sabotage or engage in acts of self-betrayal and continue to bring what I needed into that relationship without requiring them to do anything differently. And of course, the gift was not only were they open and willing, they had beautifully began their own individual work. And now, several years later, we've truly been able to evolve all of the different individual dynamics within the family, um, as well as the whole dynamic. So the most difficult decision with a lot of fear really on the other side of it, I think really benefited all of us in a lot of ways. How has improving the relationships with your immediate family impacted your in, your intimate relationships? Oh, I mean, again, like like dominoes. When I think whenever we're able to, our family is is for a lot of us the hardest place to create change. The dynamics are embedded in us. I mean, in in, in very many ways. And I write about this in How to Be the Love You Seek. We learn how to relate to ourselves and other people through those early relationships, and especially when you're embedded in a system. Um, for me, it was mainly my mom, my dad, and my sister who was most present in my life, though I do have an older brother. But when we're embedded in a system in which we have a lot of frequent contact or relation, there becomes a dynamic, right? I play this role, you play that role. Um, so ultimately, it when we create change, that is A, why it's so hard to create change because when one person shifts, the whole system is impacted. And as I've talked about, you know, endlessly in how to do the work, change is hard. We're not wired, right, to prefer change. We actually like to stay in those well-worn worn ruts. We have a sense of identity, right? I'm the helper of the family. Um, I'm the overachiever. I'm the underachiever, whatever role it is. And the whole family is settled into that. Um, so when we are able to, as I was able to, actually shift the dynamic through making choices, through first taking responsibility for how I felt when I was relating to my family that just continued to give me confidence to then do that in my personal relationships, to make sure that there was separation um, in my family. I, I had very limited boundaries growing up. We operated as a unit. We thought as a unit. We felt as a unit. When someone was stressed, the whole family was stressed until the issue itself resolved. Usually we rallied around um, so within my personal relationships, I've, I've had to teach myself how to tolerate the discomfort of being separate, different, thinking a different way than my partners, feeling a different way, um, being in a different choice of, you know, I need to rest in this moment while maybe they're not resting or really honoring my needs. And again, it just continues um, not to say that I'm, I'm complete on that journey. I don't think any of us ever are though it has continued to give me, again, that confidence, that connection with my intuition where I'm able to drop in, regardless of 
who's doing what or feeling what around me, I'm able to attune um, to how it is that I feel and what it is that I need. And really the byproduct of that has been I'm able to be a better partner now because I am caring for myself. And again, I go into the science of the nervous system in the new book and why it is so important to have that space and to make sure that we're getting our needs met and we're getting the support in or outside of our committed relationships. Because a lot of us, I think like myself, have learned this idea of selflessness in service to another. When in reality, it's actually not selfless at all. We end up enacting a very selfish cycle if we're not making sure that our basic survival and emotional needs are being met. So ultimately, it's translated in me, in, into me working um, to be a better partner, um, a more heart-centered partner, and more able to give and receive compassion and support in all of my relationships. A lot of people you know, find themselves in, the, in a similar situation that you were in where they're continuing to self-sabotage in relationships, repeating the same pattern only to find themselves continuing to be unhappy, miserable, and, you know, just, just tired of what they've been tolerating throughout the course of their life. And just say that somebody's listening to this, where they've reached that point where they want to create some separation. They want to change, even though they acknowledge it's going to be hard, but they don't know where to start. I know we talked about at the beginning that the precursor for addressing these self-sabotaging cycles is to become aware of why they happen. Let's just say that somebody has started to develop some sense of awareness. Like how can they start to then work on those patterns so that they can stop the cycle of self-sabotage in future relationships? First, I think it's really important to celebrate that awareness. Um, So many of us live unconsciously and with that awareness, oftentimes comes a lot of feelings, a lot of grief, a lot of anger. Um, Once we see, again, these patterns that we've been reenacting, we often feel a million different ways. So I don't say that lightly when I say take a moment to acknowledge that shift um, into consciousness. And I think it's also important to expand that practice of consciousness, not to only know where it came from, to be able to kind of be that hovering presence um, in our own mind in real time, to see ourselves beginning to go down those self-betraying, self-sabotaging or whatever pathway, whatever dysfunctional pattern it is. Because if we're not seeing in real time, we're not going to be able to give ourselves the opportunity to take that next step, which is as simple as it may sound, beginning to break those patterns by making new choices. And this is what I would see historically in my clients where I used to practice much more traditionally. I would work with people who had an endless amount of self-awareness where things came from, Though in real time, they were just so dropped into that autopilot, reacting in that habitual way, and then feeling very shameful after the fact and likely coming into session with me next week, reporting more of the same. So expanding the ability to be really present in real time when we're seeing right all those thoughts going through our mind about how we should show up, maybe in service of someone else, even if we know we don't have the time, attention, or emotional bandwidth to do so. If we don't see in real time, chances are we're going to overstep our boundary in that moment and show up anyway. However, if we're able to in real time kind of feel that instinct, see those thoughts in our mind, the shoulds, feel that instinct in our body, then we can begin to make new choices to break that habit. Though the caveat here is we have to be in our body because there will be discomfort that comes when we make new choices. We'll have all of the guilt-inducing thoughts in our mind. 
we might actually feel uncomfortable in our physical vessel and our physical presence, right? We might start to feel that tension or the kind of impact of the stress, all of the worries about disappointing. And this is again, where I think until we include the body in a conversation about creating change, many of us aren't able to. We'll over time begin to pay attention to the guilt. We'll take back the boundary that we set. We won't be able to physiologically tolerate the discomfort in our body. And before we know it, we're right back down those old habit pathways. So seeing is half the battle. Seeing in real time allows us to make new choices. And then we really do have to create new ways to cope with our racing thoughts of guilt, with the discomfort in our bodies that we're feeling when we're doing something new. This is where the somatic or the body-based practices are so important because anytime we do something new, our body is going to feel stressed by it. And sometimes we're even met with reactive resistance from someone else where we're told, right, that we shouldn't actually be doing that or we're made to feel a way that's just too uncomfortable for us to tolerate. How do you recommend somebody going about that and working on regulating their nervous system because I think what happens is they'll hear stuff like this and they're like, you know what, this is so important. I got to do this. I got to work on stuff on my own. But when the the work I think really counts is like when you're like on that next date or you're at that next family dinner and somebody's on a date, you're not feeling it. They're like, hey, I'd love to see you again. You're like, oh, I, I, me too, right? Even though deep down you're like, I don't like, I don't like this person. I have no romantic interest in them. But again, it's like that cycle repeats because that that person is just too nervous to speak their mind. And I don't I don't think they can just be like, well, let me go walk outside and like meditate and then come back. Like what can somebody do in like real life situations to be able to control themselves to make a different decision? I really appreciate you, Doug, kind of highlighting the reality of this because you're right. We can't. We can't just kind of recollect this conversation. Dr. Nicole said do all these things and the next time flash forward on this date where couldn't agree with you more. When many of us are meeting or creating a relationship with someone new, so many of us are more focused on them. What are they thinking of us? Oh, they want to go back out with me again? Okay, the people pleaser in me says yes without attuning to the reality of, wait a minute, I, I'm not vibing this. This isn't something I'm interested in. And so I really highlight, I, I appreciate you highlighting the reality of it. And this is, again, where the important practices, in my opinion, have to become foundational, meaning outside of those moments of acute stress. We have to attune to the fact, as simple as it sounds, that we are in a physical body. Our certain aspects, our breath, our heart rate, our muscle tension changes as we're becoming stressed. And as we're becoming more and more stressed out, the more likely it is to end up saying yes when we mean no, to end up overstepping our limits when we know instinctively that we don't have the ability to do that. So I think about foundational practices in terms of nervous system wellness. And a lot in this new relationship book is about taking care of our physical bodies so that in then those moments, I can become more responsive as opposed to reacting in those old ways, which means tending to my nutrition, making sure my body is getting the nutrient that nutrients that it needs and avoiding inflammatory foods that stress out my body making sure that I'm sleeping well at night or I'm getting the amount of hours that I need on the other side of that, making sure I'm moving to release the tension, um, really attuning to my breath and making sure that my cells are getting the oxygen that it needs. 
because we have to, I believe most of us have, as adults, um, and I know this maps onto the work you do, we have to teach our body how to deal with uncomfortable emotions, stressful and uncomfortable emotions, or else we will rely on those older habitual ways of doing it. And unfortunately, we have to build those foundational practices consistently and daily so that we can begin to notice, right, as my muscles are beginning to clench and my heart rate is beginning to elevate. Before I cross that point of no return at this hypothetical date, I have to be attuned enough with my body and I have to be able to move from stressed to more calm and responsive so that I remember this beautiful conversation, these new tools, and more so so that I'm actually able to make that new choice in the moment. I know there's various protocols out there for like regulating the nervous system. And obviously there's protocols on fitness and there's nutrition information. There's, there's all this stuff that people can follow or just try to figure out what works for them. I think the thing that really gets in people's way, and it's certainly gotten in my way over the years, is these subconscious thoughts that are just ingrained in our mind. It's like, all right, like if, if I stand up for myself in this moment, like, are they not going to like me? Am I going to be lonely? What are they going to think of me? What are they going to say about me online? Like whatever the thought is, or will I ever meet somebody? Or, I mean, again, you could say a million things. Have any practices worked for you or, or, or with your clients or you, that you recommend even in your community for like exercises that people could do on a regular basis to like reprogram the thoughts that run through their mind consistently? What's most important, I think, is to understand that the thoughts don't just live in our mind. Um, the thoughts, especially when they're, we're talking about these deep-rooted beliefs, they're actually ingrained in our body and based on our very real lived experience, right? Which means being the social creature that we all are, we need other people. In childhood, we need other people to quite literally sustain our physical life. We need other people in terms of emotional support. We're wired to need other people. So it's no surprise that even the way you're able to so quickly, right? Are they going to like me? Or what are people going to say? Am I going to be ostracized from the group? It's no coincidence that your mind and many of our beliefs, right, go back to how well we'll be accepted or belonging, belonged, I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to make one, belonged to a group and or on the other side of that, how, how likely it is that we'll be rejected. So we need other people. So that feeling of being socially rejected or ostracized, actually there's studies now in the brain where it activates a physical pain pathway. It actually hurts us. And for many of us, it brings us back to a time where we were actually, we might've been physically um, abandoned by a caregiver, or in my case, physical, my parents were always physically present, but emotionally they weren't able to be attuned to me. So I felt emotionally abandoned. So saying that to say, these aren't just the thoughts in our mind that we're dealing with. Of course, becoming conscious of the racing nature of what it is that my mind is telling me and also understanding that there's going to be feelings, fears along with it, maybe even the pain of these past rejections. So same two steps, becoming conscious of what's happening in the current moment will then allow me and many times the choices that we want to make will be based in terms of our body, right? Calming our nervous system down if it is starting to fear rejection, learning new ways or to kind of new ways to release whatever it is that we're feeling emotionally. And at the same time, rebuilding, in, for the in purposes of this conversation, rebuilding our connections 
with other people. Because I think this is a lot, a large reason why many of us have probably come up against the wall of affirmations and they don't always work per se. Because if we're only reciting something new in our mind and we're not giving ourselves the opportunity to make new choices to maybe calm this fear of abandonment, the stress response that's happening in my body, and more so, we're not giving ourselves experiences to embody the experience or the you know uh, moment of being connected to another person, then those affirmations aren't really going to work. So again, I think when we expand awareness that these beliefs not, don't just live in our mind in the racing narratives or repetitive narratives, they live in our body and they're based on very real pain in our past for the most, for most of us then that will open up the opportunity to deal with the pain in our physical bodies, with the fear in our physical bodies. At the same time, I want to continue to emphasize the importance of creating supportive, connective relationships, which for a lot of us means showing up in a new way, being vulnerable, sharing what's going on with those around us. You brought up a really good point because I think what you said about affirmations goes in line with manifestation in that if you just say, oh, I'm going to make more money, I want to make more money, then you don't take any action. Well, you're not going to make more money, right? If you want a new relationship, but you don't go out there and put yourself out there, it's not going to happen. The same thing with like telling yourself you're worthy and then you just continue to not, not make different choices and self-sabotage. Well, there's going to be this cognitive dissonance where your mind in some way just doesn't believe you because your actions and choices aren't reflective of what you're saying. And, um, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, you know, I'm really resonating with what you guys are talking about. I want to make sure that going into this next relationship that I don't repeat the same patterns, that I don't self-sabotage, that I am connected to myself. What are a few things that you think people should make sure they do before getting into a new relationship? Is it therapy? Is it, you know, having a routine every day to connect with your nervous system? Like, what do you recommend for people? Again, creating that for most of us, the shifts in our relationship with other people begin with shifting in our relationship with ourselves. Um, and for me, just to kind of translate this into practicality, as someone who always outsourced, showed up for another person, overstepped my own limits, that is my daily commitment to before all of the external commitments in my world, obligations, even things I love doing, work and creating and being of service. That means each and every morning and all of those habits and patterns and my instinctual desire to put everything else in the world first are still there. And again, I just like to emphasize because awareness doesn't remove all of these neurobiological wired patterns in us. So top of the morning for me, I wake up and I have a choice point. Do I tend to the world around me like I'm used to doing, knowing where that ends, or do I create that time to be for me to connect with myself. However, that needs to look for me. It includes movement. It includes silent moments, not even in a traditional sense of meditation. I like to read kind of spiritual books, um, motivational books, and just have those quiet moments with myself. And this can be even when, I mean, I'm, I'm in a relationship actually with two people. So when we're in relationship, it doesn't mean because I do see a lot of question out there, you know, to be, you know, break the cycles in my relationships, do I have to spend time alone? Um, the reality of it is, you know, some of us are in committed partnerships and we don't have the time alone, nor do we need it. We just have to create time for ourselves within the relationship with other people. And again, that includes making sure that I'm caring for my physical body 
making sure that I'm aware of what my emotional needs are. Because ultimately, when we go to change the dynamic, to break the cycles, you know, to be in relation with others in a new way, we also have to anticipate that there will be that discomfort. So for me, being emotionally distant, right, my number one complaint is no one can emotionally connect to me, came to realize, lo and behold, I'm not connected to me, my physical body, I'm away on my spaceship, I'm not connected to my emotional world, less so I'm not sharing what it is that I need with other people, I'm not able to receive that support, so consciously I'm aware of all of this. To this day, there's still that vulnerability, that fear of rejection. If I were to say, hey, I need support, receiving support, oftentimes if I am in a moment where I'm physically unwell and I need the you know, physical care of another or I'm emotionally stressed out and I need someone to be there for me to listen, to help lighten my emotional load, there's a big running narrative in my head that feels like a burden that worries about how the other person is experiencing me in those moments. So whether we're in a relationship or we're out, if any of these habits are new to carve out time and space for ourselves as an individual, for many of us, that means exploring, getting curious about who we are, what we think, what, how we feel, what we want, um, what we need in our relationships. And once we get clearer or we're clear that we need to create that space for ourselves, don't anticipate that it will be easy. Um, then there still is those action points of embodying those new choices and of having all of those fears come back, those worries, all of the emotions. Um, and again, that embeddedness in our system, sometimes we are met with the resistance from people outside of us. So again, it's the daily commitment for me, um, being connected to who I am, to what I want, to what I need, and being truly aware that there are still some moments where even giving and receiving support, um, allowing myself to be loved in a deep emotional way still feels uncomfortable. And at the ready are still all of those old habits um, where I want to run away. I want to distance myself and or I don't want to share the fact that I'm even in need of that connection or that support in that moment because it still feels vulnerable as it once did when I was a young kid. I'm really glad you brought up that, um, you know, you think people need, you know, sometimes people will hear I need to be single to like heal and, and work on these patterns and stuff because I know, I know I've heard you say that like relationships are our greatest teacher, right? And I think a lot of times this self-help work gets misinterpreted by people that, where they assume that they have to be like fully quote unquote healed in order to start dating somebody or putting themselves out there. But I would imagine there's some middle ground where you don't want to just break up with somebody and then the next day get on a dating app and then start dating somebody and then repeating the same cycles that caused the breakup in the first place. How How can somebody know if they're if they've quote unquote done the work and they're ready to pursue another relationship or they're not going to repeat the same patterns. I, yeah, I, I appreciate this question because I do again, think a lot of us um, are unsure of, of when to get in a relationship and, or we could get to the state of, Oh, okay, I'm calm. I'm grounded. I know what I want. I know what I need. And then I do go find or connect with a new relationship. And here come all of those old patterns, which is why, you know, you have heard me say on many occasions that, relationships are not only our greatest need, they are our greatest teacher because a lot of us, you know, think we're healed to really simplify it. And then we start to relate to those around us, revisiting older relationships or creating new ones. And we're met with those challenges. Um, as always, I think it is kind of our own intuition that will tell us, and it's not even a state of readiness. I just want to, I think, kind of define what I would mean when, when I hear readiness 
are we are we in a stage of developing the trust with ourselves to navigate the uncertainty of relating with another person? Because I don't think um, I have yet to find this elusive place of ready. Um, I think ready really means can I walk into the unknown of revisiting a past relationship like I did with my family, of creating a new relationship, of getting to know a human who's different than myself, different perspectives, different lived experiences, different wants and different needs. And can I stay grounded in myself, not lose myself in this relationship? And can I stay grounded in my responsiveness in moments where we are at odds, where we disagree, where we have different wants and needs in any given moment? So I think if we redefine readiness, um, it's not necessarily a state. It's a state of internal self-confidence, self-security, where I can continue to navigate the uncertainty, the stress of relating to another person. I can responsively navigate these moments of disagreement or of conflict. I think that can be an indicator then, much like I was sharing in my story with my family. I was starting to become confident in my own ability to set limits, to stand in those limits, and to tolerate the discomfort of moments of misinterpretation, misunderstanding, differing wants and needs, that allowed me then to feel, quote unquote, ready to re-engage. I know one of the things that causes people to self-sabotage in relationships, and I think you've kind of alluded to this throughout the conversation, is the inability to speak up for ourselves and to effectively communicate what we need in moments during relationships. And let's just say that somebody is is dating somebody or they're in a relationship and they've realized that you know they're they're ready to pursue this thing but they they notice there's some work that needs to be done and they want to communicate that either to the person that they've just started dating or their um their um their partner they've been in a relationship with for a while i think it's it's tough because especially on a first date, if you lead with, well, I have all this trauma, all this stuff, that's going to like, I think, push somebody away. Cause they're like, wait a second. I just met you like two minutes ago. Like, why are you sharing all of this with me? And then the other extreme is somebody being afraid not to say anything. And I think obviously there's a middle ground where you want to be able to, you know, convey your, you know, quote unquote, red flags to somebody and what you're working on so that they can be aware of it. And you can work together. What do you, what's your advice on like a, like a, and I know you don't like, the, the readiness term, but if you were just to give like a general, some general guidance on how to communicate that with somebody, like how would they start? The first thing I would want to say is and emphasize how important communication is. So many of us enter into relationships with that, this idea or expectation that people should just know, right? The right person will just know how to relate to me, how to connect with me, you know, know all of this without communicating even more so. I think a lot of things are left not communicated at the start of, especially if it's a kind of romantic partnership where there's an idea of a future, where which might include marriage or not marriage, which might include children or not having children, or of an actual geographic location where you want to live this hypothetical future. I think a lot of us, because of fear, maybe before even fear, some of us aren't even connected to what we want and need in those areas or are imagining for our future of our relationship. And or if we are aware, few of us are feeling comfortable enough to communicate that in fear of having that immediate rejection, having one say, oh, you want children? Well, actually children aren't aligned for me and this might not then be the relationship. But things like that in terms of core values 
when when I'm thinking about red flags, I think those are the things that can be communicated more early on, especially if you're you know exploring a long-term relationship or that's the context of the relationship that you're pursuing. Back to this idea though of you know our childhood and right kind of unloading all of the stuff that happened, I think that there has to be an emotional kind of connection built to allow the safety and the security for that to naturally then become part of the conversation. So it might not be on the first date where you're getting to know someone and you're sharing all of your deepest, darkest, though, as the relationship begins to build and there's that emotional connection that's being created and being deepened, then of course you want to begin to have those conversations. To have those conversations, though, my suggestion would be not in a moment of upset. Not when you're screaming and yelling or there's a disagreement or you're in a fight or in a conflict. And that's when a lot of this comes out, not at a grounded moment. And when we're on a much grounded moment outside of these active, active nervous system activating moments of conflict, when I'm calm and grounded, more so when my partner to whom I want to communicate these things is also calm and grounded. Because if I'm in a reactive state, I'm probably going to say and do the communication in a way that's not going to be received well by the other and if the other who I'm communicating with isn't in a calm and reactive state even if I'm at the ready and I really want to have this conversation tonight and you come home from a really stressed out day at work maybe nothing to do with me or our relationship at all but if you're in that survival brain you're not going to be able to responsibly hear these emotional communications. So making sure again that these are happening at a time where the communication can actually be given in a calm and grounded way, especially when they're of an emotional nature of what happened to us and or when the other person can hear. Though I think to emphasize this entire conversation, it is important at some point to share, especially when it's going to impact our relational dynamics. It is important to begin to speak about um, what patterns we see in ourselves and to be open to hearing, even if it is difficult, what patterns are happening in our partners. It comes back to just the massive importance of learning how to regulate your own nervous system um, when having difficult conversations, when um, doing something new, when like changing the way you talk to yourself or changing the way you talk to to others. I mean, it all you know translates into various parts of our relationship with ourselves and other people. And if a relationship to ourself is at the top as being like most important when it comes to our romantic relationships, I would say somewhere up there as well is how we navigate conflict, which is tough for people because when, when there's conflict in a relationship, when you fight, like everything's tested, abandonment issues pop up, um, a disagreement, people are triggered. What, what have been some things that have worked for you? Like, you know, in the past, you know, you're in a relationship, like you said, with two different people, like how, how do you, like, what are some of your best practices for navigating conflict in the relationship that you're in? One of the biggest mental shifts, um, though also mapping onto to my body is understanding that conflict is natural. Coming from a household where hard things weren't talked about, they were swept under the rug. I was very secretive. I didn't share my perspectives, opinions to even allow for conflict. And when there was upset with my mom in particular, when she was disappointed or you know didn't like the way I was being, was angering her in some way, she actually would shut down and give me the silent treatment, which again, in childhood, when your core caregiver is disconnected from you in that way, it, it does bring up all of those feelings of abandonment. And the byproduct, usually what happens is we modify. We stop saying, as I did, I became very secretive. I didn't share much of anything that might cause 
that upset and then that related disconnection. So for a long time in my relationships, I had assumed conflict was to be avoided. It was it was an indicator that the relationship was going down the wrong path and or when there was distance, right, disconnection in our perspectives or beliefs or needs in any given moment, I would automatically go back to that childhood self where I would feel very threatened, I would feel very nervous and anxious and I would more often than not say or do things to end the conflict, even if they weren't in alignment with what I really believed with or what I really was feeling or what I really needed. So saying that to say, really coming to understand, and I think a lot of us come from families where conflict is either eruptive um, and it feels really scary to, you know, even engage with or results in disconnection. I think very few of us have learned that conflict is normal. And again, remember that learning doesn't just live in, oh, okay, well, conflict is normal. We have to teach our bodies in those moments, how to navigate those moments of disconnection, of conflict, and of disagreement. And what we're really talking about, probably of no surprise to listeners at this point, is our nervous system. Because when we're at odds with someone, when we're hearing a different perspective, when we're hearing a different emotional experience about what's happening, when we're hearing different needs, often what's being activated is our threat response, our nervous system, which is why so many of us can so easily become mean in conflict or either because we're saying and doing things that are mean to another person or we're disconnecting and removing ourselves emotionally from this person that we care about. Because the reality of it is in conflict, when our nervous system is activated, we're physiologically driven, meaning that person is not the person that I love anymore in this moment. They are the threat at hand. So we almost delete the humanity and we lose our ability to be connected to our heart, to be compassionate, to remember that we actually do care about this other person and their wants and their needs and that we do want to negotiate a way to move forward that can work for most of us. So again, understanding that conflict is natural is half of it. We have to teach our body in those moments how to be calm and regulate it so that we can actually hear another person's perspective, even if it does differ from our own, especially when it differs from our own. Um, so that we can continue to be responsive and show up in an active, compassionate negotiation where we're able to hear what they want or what they need, where they're coming from, how they're feeling, and also factor ourselves in without, again, becoming combative or becoming disconnected as many of us do. And I would imagine that would also be a great time to say to somebody, hey, listen, I just need to take some space. I need to take some time to Go think about this and come come back to a place where I can have a conversation that's going to be productive. And that's where you can do some of these nervous system regulation techniques, or even if you wanted to schedule like a session with a therapist or whatever you're you're working on. Like, would, is that like the the thing that you would recommend to somebody? Beautiful, one hundred percent. Though, again, the caveat being, um, well, first and foremost, even going back to this idea, as I think some of us have, right? Don't go to bed angry. Don't walk away from a conflict. I actually think what you're sharing right here, Doug, is is that is not the, uh, in my opinion, helpful advice. There are moments where, especially when we're in that survival brain and, and the person that I'm in conflict with is also in that survival brain, the best thing we can do for the relationship is actually to walk away in that moment, maybe overnight, however long it takes to become common grounded again for both parties, right? Because I might regulate sooner than my partner. And if, if they're in a dysregulated state, we're not going to be able to have that present conversation that I was describing earlier. Now, the caveat here is 
what are you thinking about in those times away? You could have all the tools. Oh, I'm going to go take a walk. I'm going to go do some belly breathing. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to stretch, whatever it is I'm going to do. If when I'm doing those things, I'm rehashing the argument, chances are not only am I going to keep those emotions alive in myself in a dysregulated state, I'm probably going to come back with more of a court case, as I like to call it, about why I'm right. So being aware of where my attention is in those moments where I'm calming my body down. And if I do start to rehash the argument or think about what they said or what I could have said better or different, I'm going to say as soon as we get back to this conversation, rehooking or refocusing, I should say, that attention, unhooking it from the endless thoughts in our mind, which are just reflective of the stress in our body and focusing our attention on our breath, on whatever it is that we're doing, on our sensory experience of our environment or somewhere else entirely, because then we actually give our body a chance to become calm and regulated and grounded. And then, like I said, not only committing to repair, not just sweeping on the rug like many of us have been learned to do, but coming back for that moment of repair when we're grounded and when the other person is grounded too. And honoring the fact that it might take partners, friends, loved ones a longer amount of time to enter that repair phase, to be in that calm, grounded presence so that we can actually calmly talk about what it is that happened. So I know you just mentioned that people shouldn't focus on the argument per se. They should focus on their breath and their body and really calming their nervous system. But is there anything that they should like put their put thought into as far as like re-entering the conversation like what are they going to say differently that's not going to you know upset their partner not going to upset themselves i think um and i give uh, some of these tips and tools in how to be the love you seek um, i think it can be really helpful when we're thinking about if we do want to construct um, especially if this is new language new communication to maybe think about what it is that we want to communicate and i think what's unhelpful to do is to focus on the other person, right? Using you-based language, focusing on what they're doing or not doing or what they've done in the past. It's also unhelpful to use kind of those all or nothing statements. It's always happened. You never, right, do this. What could be helpful if we do want to kind of rehearse or even think about what it is that we're going to say, focusing on us, right? What I am going to do, how I feel, the change that I'm going to make the next time this happens. And again, to avoid that all or nothing based language. I think that it can be incredibly kind of communicate helpful communication tips, as can be. Um, my book talks a lot about the power of the heart um, and the power of, you know, being in that grounded, compassionate, loving state. Um, I think a, a way that we can enter into that conversation once we're calm and grounded might be to remember, and I give this suggestion in the book, to call to mind what it is that's important about this relationship, why it is that you want to engage in this moment of repair, what it is about this other person, right, that is meaningful to you, especially when we're coming off of conflict where it's so easy to think about everything they're not, all of the pain that this relationship is causing, if we're able to ground ourselves in our, in our heart, right, and sometimes that means calling to mind, you know, what is something that is important, that is a value, that is something that you see in this person or you do want to continue? So I think being grounded more in those heart-based, compassionate intentions can help then shift the energy of that communication in addition to using those helpful communication tips. Bring everything full circle and as we enter into the final stages of our conversation, there's a lot of people that are just angry. 
you know, their hearts have been broken. There's just a lot of anger that's just pent up. I mean, I've seen some of the comments on your posts of people that have just been hurt and have been really, you know, damaged in relationships and they're upset. They have no hope for romance anymore. And they've just lost that ability to connect to their heart. And it's just filled with anger. You talk about this in your book, but just in the, in the few minutes that we have left, like what advice do you have for somebody who is just in that place? They're that person who's commenting on your posts that they're just angry and just sick of these unhealthy relationships and unhealthy, you know, family relationships that have just gotten their, their heart completely crushed. It's important to honor that anger, in my opinion. Um, we feel anger. Anger is an evolutionary emotion that signals when our needs are unmet or for many of us have gone unmet for a lifetime within our relationships. We haven't had time or space or someone to care and connect and we may might have been that person, right? Engaging in those acts of self-betrayal. Anger is also a signal that our limits or our boundaries either are being or have, again, for some of us, a lifetime have been crossed. So it's so important um, as we're healing and as we're becoming conscious of all of the patterns within our relationship, our relationship to ourselves included, to honor the very real nature of our anger. Um, anger is one of those complicated emotions as well that often has other feelings entwined with it. Um, anger and grief can easily go hand in hand. Not only am I anger angry about all these unmet needs and overstepped boundaries, I'm actually grieving all of this relationship and this experience and this connection and this care and this love that I didn't have. So again, making space for the anger, not invalidating it, not sweeping it under the rug, not trying to bypass it by just trying to right, have, think our way or affirm our way into not being angry anymore, actually creating the space to feel it in our bodies, not just to know it in our minds that I'm angry, to sit with the very overwhelming physiology of anger and of grief and of all of the different complicated emotions that get wrapped up in it and allowing ourselves to find a new outlet to allow it to release and for some of us that can happen as we zoom out on our own experience and see even the moments where we've hurt ourselves or we've hurt other people and compassionately expand that awareness to understand that it wasn't our intention it was often a result of these habitual patterns, being in survival mode ourselves. And I think as we heal and we understand our own patterns and our own past and nervous system dysregulation and how that causes us to, right, to delete the humanity in someone else, I think some of us then can zoom out on even those of us in our, our relationships with even those of us that have hurt us the most right, by what they've done or what they haven't done. And some of us are then able to allow in not to delete our anger that will still be part of our experience, though also to allow in maybe a compassionate awareness that it was never about us at all, what it is that has happened to us, that it was, again, their inability, the people who have hurt us, that is, and their own nervous system dysregulation and their inability to tolerate their own emotions and to remain responsive that caused the hurt. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that some of us make the choice to continue relationships with some of these humans that have hurt us, though I think it will allow us to shift over time, not immediately overnight, our own experience of, of anger, of being able to forgive ourselves for what we've done in these cycles of self-betrayal, in these cycles, cycles of anger and dysregulation, and sometimes being able to forgive another, even if we don't, of course, actively or if we're not safe, to engage in a continued relationship with them.
Nicole, this has been awesome. Always love talking to you. Thanks again for coming back on. I'm excited for people to, to listen to this and to also um, to get your new book. So if people want to buy the book, if they want to connect with you, if they haven't already, where's the best place to do all that stuff? Thank you, Doug. As always, I love connecting with you. I love connecting with your community. So thank you to all of you listening. Uh, anyone who is interested in the book itself, it is likely available wherever you buy books. Most book re major book retailers should have some copies on stock. I do have a new website um, that we just put up, howtobethelovyouseek.com, that has some information on some retailers here in the States at least. Um, any other access to these information, this incredible community. At this point, we've expanded um, our social media reach across all of the different platforms. Of course, it all began on the Instagram account, the.holistic.psychologist, though we now have a TikTok, a Twitter, a Threads, a YouTube, all a version of that holistic psychologist handle. So come join the conversation and more importantly, in my opinion, join the incredible community on any of those platforms. Amazing. Well, I'll be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And thanks once again for coming on. I think the audience is going to get a lot of value out of this. Of course. Thank you again for having me.